our New Testament text and sermon text as we preach through the Gospel of Mark is Mark 2, verses 1 through 12. You can find it in your Bible or in your bulletin. Read and hear God's word with me. And when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came, bringing him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And Jesus saw their faith, and he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like this? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven? Or to say, Rise, take up your bed and walk but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose, and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, We never saw anything like this. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, have mercy on us that we may hear Jesus' words to us from his word and be forgiven. Let the meditations of my mouth, uh, the meditations of our hearts and the words of my mouth be pleasing in your sight, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. On June 30th, 1967, 17-year-old Johnny Erickson began what she has called the incredible adventure of her life. That day she dove into the Chesapeake Bay and she misjudged the depth of the water. This dive, this fateful dive, resulted in her breaking her neck and leaving her paralyzed and without feeling from her shoulders down. Her autobiography that she wrote a few years later details the two years of her life after this accident in which she experiences deep anger, depression, Suicidal thoughts, religious doubts, loneliness, all as a teenage woman. Her autobiography in many ways is a quadriplegic Christian teenager trying to answer the question, what does Romans 8, 28 mean for me? How can God cause even my horrible disability to work together for my good? And she recounts over and over, page after page, all the ways she looked for hope in these dark times, trying to come up with a reason God would let this happen to her. In the hospital, she assumed maybe God let this happen to her so she would become strong because she needed to try and do everything she could to be healed. Well, as time passed and learned, she learned medically this would not be possible, she believed maybe God did this to get my attention And I need to get close to him before I find find healing. 
And then maybe then, he'll heal me supernaturally. So only he will get the glory. However, page after page, month after month, year after year, all of these hopes were lost. They were all disappointed. As I mentioned, medically speaking, she would never have feeling in any of her limbs again. And even as she grew in her faith, no healing came. Even after she and friends faithfully visited healing crusades and faith healers. But through these disappointments, Johnny grew in a sense that God was working something deeper. That Jesus wasn't inactive, he was active the same way he was for the paralytic. And the same way he can be for you today. Today's story reveals to us the miraculous power of Jesus, doesn't it? And Jesus can and promises to work this power for you. So today, first, I want to retell the story the way the people there would have experienced it. Because that will help us clearly see the central truth communicated. That because our Savior, Jesus, came to earth to forgive sins, we must receive this as the greatest gift. Because this is our deepest need. So our story begins, Jesus has retired from his preaching tour. His ministry didn't last long. Jesus' last encounter on the road was a leper who decided to go out and spread the news of who Jesus was with everyone he met. And far from that actually being a good thing, Jesus rebuked him for it. Because now Jesus, viewed as a celebrity healer, can't even go out in public. The crowds coming to Jesus, mobbing him, are now an obstacle to the teaching ministry he wants, rather than a sign to his great success. So we find Jesus in this story, instead of on the road, teaching privately in a home. Now, typical homes in ancient Israel were small. They were one room, they had a flat roof. And so Jesus is probably speaking to about 50 people. There are probably more people here today than Jesus was speaking to that day. And everyone there, though, is curious, what will this man do? What will he say next? They've heard stories from him, from Galilee. But it's interesting. He's in a place he calls home, but not everyone there even supports him. This story will begin a series of conflicts we'll be reading with the most religious Jews of his day. And these are, of course, the people we would have expected to be most excited about Jesus and Jesus to confirm and praise. But Jesus, during his sermon, hopefully mine is not interrupted in the same way, his sermon is interrupted by a surprise. The roof starts coming down. The verb is literally, they unroofed the roof. These flat roofs were accessible by a stairway. The roofs in that day were made with thatching, and then they packed it with mud and earthen material to protect it from rain. And as you can probably guess, these roofs were not permanent. They had to be redone every fall to prepare for all the winter rain coming. So, of course, it would have been a strange sight to begin seeing light pouring through the roof and debris falling down. But this isn't a job that would have taken a jackhammer. But this unexpected drama cues us to something. Something unusual is going on. And soon after, four friends using ropes lower what our English translation calls a paralytic down on a bed. Now, the term for paralysis here is not specific, and it probably doesn't mean um, what it means for someone like Johnny Erickson. 
We get almost no details about him. All we know is that the men brought this man to Jesus because of their faith in him. Their faith, in this case, is being made visible by their actions. Again, as I mentioned, it's unlikely he was, became paralyzed because of an injury like Johnny Erickson. Because without modern medicine, an injury like that almost certainly would have been fatal to anyone. So, it's possible he was born a cripple. It's possible he suffered from a disease that prevented him from being able to walk. We don't know. But the question is, as a paralytic is literally lowered down in front of Jesus, it is the old question you might have on a bracelet somewhere. What would Jesus do? A deeply needy disabled man has been just brought in front of Jesus. They've went through every obstacle to get to him. They care for their friend enough to get him to Jesus. And Jesus stops everything and looks at him and says, My son, your sins are forgiven. Of all the strange surprises in this story, this is certainly the biggest one. These friends had enough faith to get over the crowds, to take off a roof, to get their friend to Jesus. Almost certainly they were doing so for his healing. But Jesus begins by declaring his sins forgiven. Jesus then continues his strange behavior by turning to the scribes, who have not said anything out loud. They're simply looking on, and Jesus talks to these experts in the law, these men who are, of course, interested in what the new famous rabbi might have to say. And Jesus turns to those and rebukes them, because evidently they have objections they're thinking. Jesus says, why do you question these things in your heart? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk? Well, now everyone knows Jesus is raising the stakes. Of course, it's true. No one could know when Jesus said, your sins are forgiven, if anything happened. But if he tells this man to get up and walk, everyone knows immediately if Jesus is the real deal or not. It will be clear to everyone what kind of power this man has. So Jesus, again, looks to the paralytic and says, Rise, pick up your mat, and go home. Three commands, none of which this man had the power to obey on his own. But Jesus' words changed that. Whatever skeletal deformity whatever muscles that didn't exist or were atrophied, whatever broken parts of his nervous system were immediately restored. Not over time, but in an instant. And this man stood up, picked up his mat, and went home in obedience to Jesus. And everyone there glorified God because now they knew everything they'd heard, all the stories from the road about Jesus were true. He is unlike anyone else who's ever lived. This is an amazing story, and it's given to us to teach us three powerful things about Jesus. First, it's here to teach us what is the paralytic's greatest need. Two, what kind of authority does Jesus come with? And three, what is the message of this miracle for you? First, what is the paralytic's greatest need? Before we think about that, I want you to think about your greatest need. Take 10 seconds and just think about this week, what do you need most, right? What is your greatest need for the upcoming week? Just take a moment and think about it.
Now, I hope you have a need in your mind because I want you to do it again. Maybe round out your list, add three more, add a couple more. Think of your next three biggest needs this week because you probably have more than one. As a dad who's going to travel with kids and all kinds of things, I know I have more than one. Keep thinking then for me. Now, I don't know what needs, what struggles even might be coming to your mind, but I hope as you look at your list or think about your list, you can agree with me that none of us today need anything as badly as this man needed the power to walk. He had no wheelchair for mobility. There was no government public assistance to help him. He was only a burden on his friends and family. His only hope in life was to continue begging and get enough to avoid starvation. But what does Jesus think the man needs when he's brought to him? Jesus has the power to do anything he wants for the man. He declares the man's sins forgiven. Because evidently what Jesus believed and knew as the Son of God, is what this man needs more than the power to walk is the forgiveness of his sins. That's the question today for you. Can you accept this? That of all the needs you have, of all the needs in the world, the one Jesus has come with his authority to fill is your need for the forgiveness of sins. Later in Mark's Gospel, in Mark 9, we get a picture of how seriously Jesus takes the problem of sin and its judgment. Let me read from Mark 9, 43 to 48. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter the life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet be thrown into hell. If your eyes causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes than be thrown into hell, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Our family read these verses earlier this week as just our normal Bible reading, and my daughter said, wow, that's really intense. She's right. Jesus is saying avoiding sin and its consequences is worth whatever it costs you. It's worth you being paralyzed if you can be forgiven. And this man's paralysis is the reason he's brought to Jesus, where he can be forgiven. And that should beg a question for you. Is it possible God leaves you in many of your problems, leaves you with many struggles, many of your prayers unanswered as part of providing you something greater? Would you accept physical suffering, financial instability, parenting struggles, loneliness, if that was part of God's plan to deliver you from sin? It's hard to think this way, isn't it? And I think part of it is because we are so used to our sin. Human beings are very adaptable creatures. We find ourselves able to have happiness even in the most desperate and even life-threatening situations. One extreme example of this is from the voyage of the crew of the ship Endurance. 
It was a ship that sailed to Antarctica. It was going to be the first trip where men sailed to Antarctica and traveled across its entire landmass. However, tragically, due to the incredibly unpredictable weather in Antarctica, their, liter- their ship was crushed by icebergs before their eyes. And for two years, these men had to jump from iceberg to iceberg, looking for a stable ocean current, hoping it would float them to an island. However, what's strange is obviously this is a terrifying, unimaginable scenario to find yourself in. But still, throughout their diaries, you find entries like this. It's a surprisingly lovely day on the ice today. And it's hard to imagine that we are in such a frightfully precarious situation. These men were literally living on thin ice. Which, that's pretty good. But, and despite being stranded in the most dangerous part of the world, with limited food, and no rescue coming, they could still wake up and enjoy a beautiful day of sun. Because eventually we become comfortable even in dire circumstances. And that is why it's often easy to be comfortable as sinners. We begin to accept the normalcy of living under the threat of God's judgment. We find a way to enjoy a nice day or a meal, even though we're rebelling against the God of the universe. If you really think about it, it's hard to imagine who really believed this could live a normal life for any moment of the day. Ask yourself, Christian or not, how would your life change if you believed sin was really this dangerous and your only hope for rescue was Jesus? We just, we need to recalibrate our sense of the world and sin. Because if you are in Christ today, you have immense reason to tremble with joy Because Jesus, of all the things he could do for you, he's done this. He's forgiven your sins. So, we can have peace. However, even the need for forgiveness isn't the center of the story. The center of the story is Jesus Christ's divine authority. Everything in the story communicates his authority. Jesus refers to the paralytic as my son, indicating his affection, yes, but that he has a position of superiority to the man. Jesus shows authority over everyone's hearts as he debates with people who aren't speaking. Jesus still knows. And of course, Jesus demonstrates unparalleled authority over the physical world because he can command paralyzed people to walk. But of all the things Jesus does to communicate his authority, it's forgiving sins. You see, in the ancient world, it was actually filled with healers. There were many people who claimed they could offer supernatural healing. But those faith healers did not offer forgiveness of sins to anyone. Because every Jew knew, outside of one day a year, not even their priests could offer to forgive their sins. Most ancient Jewish writings about the Messiah didn't believe even the Messiah would come to forgive their sins because that was a right reserved for God alone. This is why the scribes believe Jesus is committing the sin of blasphemy. They believe Jesus is insulting God by claiming to have attributes only God has. 
You see, they believe God is so much greater than man, so different, so much better for any human to claim any of his attributes is an insult to God. And telling Jesus he's a blasphemer, that's fighting words. That's a serious accusation in that day because blasphemy came with the death penalty. But they're right about one thing. Biblically, the power to forgive sins is something only God can do. They knew how God described himself when he revealed himself to Moses. This is what God said. The Lord, the Lord, a God, merciful, gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. They knew the words from the prophet Isaiah that Pastor Ben read earlier. This section of Isaiah's prophecy is God's trial of the false god. For five chapters, God goes through all the evidence, surveying all the idols to prove to the Israelites, there is no other God and I am the only one who can save you. And let me read to you from our reading the final piece of evidence he presents that he's the only God. I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. He is the only true God because only he forgives sins. And it makes sense. Ultimately, forgiveness of sin can only come from God. Right? If you sin against me, of course, I can forgive you. You've done something against me. I can offer grace and reconciliation despite what you've done. But if you come to tell me and you've harmed someone else, I can't forgive you for that. I don't have the authority to tell you you're forgiven for everything you've ever done wrong against your spouse, your friends, your children, your siblings, because I am not them. But God can forgive this way because he's the creator and the Lord. And that because of that, he can forgive all sin because all sin is ultimately against him. We always sin as a rebellion against him and against something he's made. The scribes are right. They're right. Forgiving man's sins is something only God can do. Which leaves them with one of two conclusions. Jesus is divine or Jesus is blaspheming and should be put to death. That's going to be a question coming up over and over again in Mark. Is Jesus Lord or should we put Jesus to death? They think it's preposterous to claim that a human could ever claim God's authority or power. And Jesus challenges this belief, though. He believes they're mistaken. And he begins to challenge this even when he calls himself the Son of Man. Again, this will be a title Jesus will begin to use over and over again of himself. It comes from a mysterious vision in heaven in the prophet Daniel. Daniel says he sees one who looks like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven before the Ancient of Days, before God. He sees a human man in heaven, and he says this man is given all authority, glory, and sovereign power. All the nations and peoples of every language worship him. Huh. Jesus is pointing out the prophets have always taught there will be at least one man totally unique from all the rest of humankind, who will act with the authority of God. 
who will be given glory as God, who will have the sovereign power of God. And, and most striking, everyone will worship him. The prophecy disproves the idea that because Jesus is a man, he cannot be God or act with God's authority. The miracle, though, is what tells us what Jesus will use his divine authority to do. Jesus comes today to forgive your sins. The purpose of this miracle, then, is ultimately to confirm that Jesus has the power to supply your greatest need. Oftentimes, when we think about Jesus' miracles, we kind of think of Jesus as a really nice guy doing supernatural acts of random acts of kindness. Right? Jesus could do miracles, so he might as well help people along the way. However, Jesus, do, miracles do show compassion to hurting people, needy people. But ultimately, Jesus' miracles are signs. Jesus says he heals this man for a very specific reason, right? He says, so that you may know the Son of Man has authority to forgive sins. Jesus has a purpose in the miracle to be a visible, supernatural sign of his divine authority. Jesus is not interested in miracles as supernatural events meant to make us ooh and ah. Jesus is avoiding crowds for this specific reason. He wants them to be signs. And as signs, they're meant to draw our attention to something else. Ultimately, and unfortunately, in our day, just as in Jesus' day, many people are more interested in the miracles than Jesus Christ and what they point to. I mean, yes, Jesus' miracles are truly amazing. I can't imagine what it would be like to see a crippled person stand up and walk. But it's a sign. That means it's pointing to something greater. Signs always point to something greater than themselves. And so if we stop at the sign, we will miss the greater purpose. We will miss the greater reality. Right? It would be like planning a trip to the Grand Canyon with your family and then stopping and deciding to camp at the park entrance sign. I mean, it's an amazing sign. We're at the Grand Canyon. And it could be. But the sign is only there to indicate that there is something of surpassing beauty and glory just beyond it. And Jesus heals the man as a sign. This is, in fact, the primary purpose of miracles throughout the New Testament. They prove that the messenger speaking is coming from God because he can do what only God can do. This is also why it's, in fact, good news that miracles are relatively rare. Why? If miracles were done all the time everywhere... Christ's complete, unique role as our Savior and his authority and power would not seem that special. It would be like having signs pointing in every direction. Where would we go? What would we look at? But even Jesus' miracles from every other biblical miracle are unique because his miracles display his message. They display what Jesus Christ has come to do. So they give us a picture of our salvation. Like the paralyzed man, you are unable to get to God on your own. You are completely needy and unworthy of his attention or time. And you cannot overcome your sin at all. If God is going to save you, he will have to act. And like 
for the man, Jesus, heals in response to faith. That makes itself visible through actions. But the man's faith isn't what saves him, is it? He's completely passive in the healing. Christ saves him through faith. It's Jesus' word that has power to save, right? This is what's recovered in the Reformation that Ben's been talking about. Christ saves him through faith alone. And his word can save you because he has the power to make you right with God by giving you full forgiveness. In Jesus Christ, God and man have been brought back together. So this is true salvation. This is a true healing. And like all true salvation, it's done to the glory of God alone forever. Because Jesus did it all. Now Jesus wants you to glorify him, not just because of the miracle, but because of what it points to. And this is why he asks the scribes this question. Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, arise, take up your bed and walk? So which is it? Which is easier to say? Well, it kind of depends on how you look at the question, isn't it? In one sense, of course, I can say to anyone, hey, your sins are forgiven. Anyone can say it. Because the results are invisible. We don't know if something's changing. So in that sense, it's of course much harder to say, get up and walk, because everyone immediately knows if I can make that happen or not. However, in another sense, forgiveness is much harder. I was recently leading this study. If you've done the Mark study with us, you know this is one of the passages we look at. We were doing this study in front of the hospitals here in town. And looking out at the hospitals, he said, I think declaring his sins were forgiven is harder. Because pointing at the hospitals, he said, there are lots of people inside these walls who can accomplish medical healings that are amazing and powerful. They make people walk again. But no doctor, no matter how good they are in there, can do a single thing to forgive your sins or make you right with God. That's why I like doing these Mark studies with so many people. Because he's right. Because the miracle is a sign that points to the greater one. It points to Jesus' greater act of love and healing. So today, what do you need most? What is the greatest thing Jesus could do for you today? Today, I hope you will learn with Joni Erickson to glorify God because Jesus, your Savior, has come to earth with divine authority to forgive your sins. As I mentioned earlier, Joni Erickson spent years going to healing services, seeking an experience of power with the Savior who can make paralytics walk. And she always read this, uh, this story when she would lose hope. And it was reading this story when she realized there was perhaps a greater miracle God was working in her life. I will read um, a few words in closing from her. She writes, Jesus could heal the paralyzed man because and only because he has the authority as the Son of God to forgive sin. This is the point he was making with the Pharisees. For him, healing the man's withered legs would take no more effort 
than setting the stars and moons into motion. For Jesus, that was finger work. But when it came to forgiving sins, this was no easy effort for our Savior. Our redemption required his blood and the strong arm of salvation. As I realized this, I collapsed into tears as I got a glimpse of how heinous my sin must be. Physical healing paled in comparison to the unthinkable abuse my transgression heaped on my Lord. So for the last 50 years in a wheelchair, I've been daily dying to self and rising with Jesus. Dying to self and rising with Jesus. Dying to self and rising with Jesus. My goal is to mortify my fleshly desires so that I might find myself in Christ. God has been answering my prayer, exposing dark things in my heart, things from which he is healing me. So does God miraculously heal? Sure he does. But in this broken world, it's still an exception and not the rule. And a no to my request for a miraculous physical healing has meant something else. It has meant that I have been purged from sin, grown in a love for the lost, increased compassion, stretched hope, an appetite for grace, an increase of faith, and a longing for heaven, a desire to serve, a delight in prayer, and a hunger for the word of Jesus. Bless my stern schoolmaster, my wheelchair, all in praise of the deeper healing of Christ. Amen. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, Give us this deeper healing. Let us know the power of your forgiveness today. God, we pray for those about to come and become members of the church. We thank you that we don't become members of the church because we are able, but because we are healed by the power of Jesus Christ. We pray these things in your name. Amen.